Part One, Chapter Eleven B of The Adventures of Jimmy Dale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. The Adventures of Jimmy Dale by Frank L. Packard. Reading by Roger Moline. Part One: The Man in the Case. Chapter Eleven B: The Stool Pigeon. Continued. It seemed for a while, even after he had gained the street and made his way again to the subway, that nothing was concrete around him, that he was living through some fantastical dream. His head whirled, and he could not think rationally, and then slowly, little by little, his grip upon himself came back. She had come, and gone. With the roar of the subway in his ears, its raucous note seeming to strike so perfectly in consonance with the turmoil within him, he smiled mirthlessly. After all, it was as it always was. She was gone, and ahead of him lay the chances of the night. Dicing with death! The words, unbidden, came back once more. If they were true before, they were doubly applicable now. It was different tonight from what it had ever been before, as she had said. Usually, to the smallest detail, everything was laid open, clear before him in those astounding letters. Tonight, it was vague at best. A man had been murdered. Connie Myers had committed the murder under circumstances that pointed strongly to some hidden motive behind and beyond the mere chance it afforded him to search his victim's house for the hidden cash. What was it? Jimmy Dale stared out at the black subway walls. The answer would not come. Station after station passed. At 14th Street he changed from the express to a local, got out at Astor Place, and a few minutes later was walking rapidly down the upper end of the Bowery. The answer would not come. Only the fact itself grew more and more deeply significant. The ghastly, callous fiendishness that lured an old, half-witted man to his death had Jimmy Dale in that grip of cold, merciless anger again, and there was a dull flush now upon his cheeks. Whatever it meant, Whatever was behind it, one thing at least was certain. He would get Connie Myers. He was close to the sanctuary now. It was down the next cross street. He reached the corner and turned it, heading east. But his brisk walk had changed to a nonchalant saunter. There were some people coming toward him. It was the gray seal now, alert and cautious. The little group passed by. Ahead, the tenement bordering on the black alleyway loomed up. The sanctuary, with its three entrances and exits. The home of Larry the Bat. And across from it was that other tenement that held a new interest for him now, where, in an empty room on the second floor, she had said, old Doyle still lay. Should he go there? He was thinking quickly now, and shook his head. It would take what he did not have to spare, time. It was already ten o'clock, and granted that Connie Myers had committed the crime only a little over an hour ago, the man by this time would certainly be on his way to Doyle's house near Pelham, if, indeed, he were not already there. 
No, there was no time to spare. The question resolved itself simply into how long, since he had already searched twice and failed on both occasions, it would take Connie Myers to unearth old Doyle's hiding place for the money. Jimmy Dale glanced sharply around him, slipped into the alleyway, and, crouching against the tenement wall, moved noiselessly along to the side entrance. A moment more, and he had negotiated the rickety stairs with practiced, soundless tread, was inside the squalid quarters of Larry the Bat, and the door of the sanctuary was locked and bolted behind him. Perhaps five minutes passed, and then, where Jimmy Dale, the millionaire, had entered, there emerged Larry the Bat, of the aristocracy and the elite of the Badlands. But instead of leaving by the side door and the alleyway, as he had entered, he went along the lower hallway to the front entrance. And here, instinctively, he paused a moment at the top of the steps, as his eyes rested upon the tenement on the opposite side of the street. It was strange that the crime should have been committed there. Something again seemed to draw him toward that empty room on the second story. He had decided once that he would not go, that there was not time. But, after all, it would not take long, and there was at least the possibility of gaining something more valuable even than time from the scene of the crime itself. There might even be the evidence he wanted there that would disclose the whole of Connie Meyer's game. He went down the steps and started across the street, but halfway over he hesitated uncertainly as a child's cry came petulantly from the doorway. It was dark in the street, and likewise it was one of those hot, suffocating evenings when in the crowded tenements of the poorer class, miserable enough in any case, misery was added to a hundredfold for lack of a single God-given breath of air. These two facts, apparently irrelevant, caused Jimmy Dale to change his mind again. He had not noticed the woman with the baby in her arms sitting on the doorstep, but now, as he reached the curb, he not only saw, but recognized her, and he swung on down the street toward the Bowery. He could not very well go in without passing her, without being recognized himself, and that was a needless risk. He smiled a little wanly. Once the crime was discovered, she would not have hesitated long before informing the police that she had seen him enter there. Mrs. Hagen was no friend of his. One could not live as he had lived, as Larry the Bat, and not see something in an intimate way of the pitiful little tragedies of the poor around him. For bad, tough, and dissolute as the quarter was, all were not degraded there. Some were simply poor. Mrs. Hagen was poor. Her husband was a day laborer, often out of a job, and sometimes he drank. That was how he, Jimmy Dale, or rather Larry the Bat, had come to earn Mrs. Hagen's enmity. He had found Mike Hagen drunk one night and in the act of being arrested, and had wheedled the man away from the officer on the promise that he would take Hagen home. And he was Larry the Bat, a dope fiend, a character known to all the neighborhood, and Mrs. Hagen had laid her husband's condition to his influence and companionship. He had taken Mike Hagen home, and Mrs. Hagen had driven Larry the Bat from the door of her miserable one-room lodging in that tenement, with the bitter words on her tongue that only a woman can use when shame and grief and anger are breaking her heart. 
He shrugged his shoulders as, back along the Bowery, he retraced his steps. But now, with the hurried shuffle of Larry the Bat where before had been the brisk, athletic stride of Jimmy Dale. At Astor Place again, he took the subway, this time to the Grand Central Station, and well within an hour from the time he had left the sanctuary, including the train journey to Pelham, he was standing in a clump of trees that fringed a deserted roadway. He had passed but a few houses once he was away from Pelham, and, as well as he could judge, there was none now within a quarter of a mile of him, except this one of old Luther Doyle's that showed up black and shadowy just beyond the trees. Jimmy Dale's eyes narrowed as he surveyed the place. It was little wonder that, known to have money, an attempt to rob old Doyle should have been made in a place like this. It was even more grimly significant than ever of some deeper meaning, that in its loneliness, an ideal place for a murder, the man should have been lured from there for that purpose to a crowded tenement in the city instead. What did it mean? Why had it been done? He shook his head. The answer would not come now any more than it had come before in the subway or in the train on the way out when he had set his brain so futilely to solve the problem. From a survey of the house, Jimmy Dale gave attention to the details of his surroundings. The trees on either side, the open space in front, a distance of fifty yards on the road, the absence of any fence. And then, abruptly, he stole forward. There was no light to be seen anywhere about the house. Was it possible that Connie Myers was not yet there? He shook his head again impatiently. Connie Myers would not have wasted any time, as the toxin had said. There was always present the possibility that the crime in that tenement might be discovered at any moment. Connie Myers would have lost no time, for let the discovery be made, let the police identify the body, as they most certainly would, and they would be out here hot-foot. Jimmy Dale stood suddenly still. What did it mean? He had not thought of that before. If old Doyle had been murdered here, there would not have been even the possibility of discovery until the morning at the earliest, and Connie Myers would have had all the time he wanted. What was that sound? A low, muffled tapping, like a succession of hammer blows, came from within the house. Jimmy Dale darted forward, reached the side of the house, and dropped on hands and knees. One question at least was answered. Connie Myers was inside. The plan that she had given him showed an old-fashioned cellarway, closed by folding trap doors, that was located a little toward the rear, and, in a moment, creeping along, he came upon it. His hands felt over it. It was shut, fastened by a padlock on the outside. Jimmy Dale's lips thinned a little as he took a small steel instrument from his pocket. Either through inadvertence or by intention, Connie Myers had passed up an almost childishly simple means of entrance into the house. One side of the trapdoor was lifted up silently and silently closed. Jimmy Dale was in the cellar. The hammering, much more distinct now, heavy, thudding blows, came from a room in the front. The connection between the cellar and the house, as shown in the toxin's plan, was through another trap-door in the floor of the kitchen. 
Jimmie Dale's flashlight played on a short, ladder-like stairway, and in an instant he was climbing upward. The sounds from the front of the house continued now without interruption. There was little fear that Connie Myers would hear anything else, even the protesting squeak of the hinges, as Jimmie Dale cautiously pushed back the trap door and the flooring above his head. An inch, two inches, he lifted it, and his eyes on a level with the opening now, he peered into the room. The kitchen itself was intensely dark, but through an open doorway, well to one side so that he could not see into the room beyond, there struggled a curiously faint, dim glimmer of light. And then Jimmy Dale's form straightened rigidly on the stairs. The blows stopped, and a voice in a low growl, presumably Connie Myers, reached him. Here, take a drive at it from the lower edge. There was no answer, save that the blows were resumed again. Jimmy Dale's face had set hard. Connie Myers was not alone in this, then. Well, the odds were a little heavier. Doubled, that was all. He pushed the trap door wide open, swung himself up through the opening to the floor, and the next instant, back a little from the connecting doorway, his body pressed closely against the kitchen wall. He was staring, bewildered and amazed, into the next room. On the floor, presumably to lessen the chance of any light rays stealing through the tightly drawn window shades, burned a small oil lamp. The place was in utter confusion. The right-hand side of a large fireplace, made of rough, untrimmed stone and cement, and which occupied almost the entire end of the room, was already practically demolished, and the wreckage was littered everywhere. Part of the furniture was piled unceremoniously into one corner, out of the way, and at the fireplace itself, working with a sledge and bar, were two men. One was Connie Myers. An ironical glint crept into Jimmie Dale's eyes. The false beard and mustache the man wore could deceive no one who knew Connie Myers, and that he should be wearing them now as he knelt holding the bar while the other struck at it seemed both uncalled for and absurd. The other man, heavily built, roughly dressed, had his back turned, and Jimmie Dale could not see his face. The puzzled frown on Jimmie Dale's forehead deepened. Somewhere in the masonry of the fireplace, of course, was where old Luther Doyle had hidden his money. That was quite plain enough, and that Connie Myers, in some way or other, had made sure of that fact was equally obvious. But how did old Luther Doyle get his money in there from time to time, as he received the interest and dividends, whose accumulation, according to the toxin, comprised his hoard? And how did he get it out again? All right, that'll do, grunted Connie Myers suddenly. We can pry this one out now. Lend a hand on the bar. The other dropped his sledge, turned sideways as he stooped to help Connie Myers. His face came into view, and with an involuntary start, Jimmy Dale crouched farther back against the wall as he stared at the other. It was Hagen, Mrs. Hagen's husband, Mike Hagen. My God, whispered Jimmy Dale under his breath. So that was it. That the murder had been committed in the tenement was not so strange now. A surge of anger swept Jimmy Dale and was engulfed in a wave of pity. 
Somehow the thin, tired face of Mrs. Hagan had risen before him, and she seemed to be pleading with him to go away, to leave the house, to forget that he had ever been there, to forget what he had seen, what he was seeing now. His hands clenched fiercely. How realistically, how importunately, how pitifully she took form before him. She was on her knees, clasping his knees, imploring him, terrified. From Jimmie Dale's pocket came the black silk mask. Slowly, almost hesitantly, he fitted it over his face. Mike Hagan knew Larry the Bat. Why should he have pity for Mike Hagan? Had he any for Connie Myers? What right had he to let pity sway him? The man had gone the limit. He was Connie Myers' accomplice, a murderer. But the man was not a hardened, confirmed criminal like Connie Myers. Mike Hagan, a murderer. It would have been unbelievable but for the evidence before his own eyes now. The man had faults, brawled enough, and drank enough to have brought him several times to the notice of the police. But this! Jimmy Dale's eyes had never left the scene before him. Both men were throwing their weight upon the bar and the stone that they were trying to dislodge. They were into the heart of the masonry now, seemed to move a little. Connie Myers stood up and, leaning forward, examined the stone critically at the top and bottom, prodding it with the bar. He turned from his examination abruptly and thrust the bar into Hagen's hands. "'Hold it,' he said tersely. "'I'll strike for a turn.' Crouched, on his hands and knees, Hagen inserted the point of the bar into the crevice. Connie Myers picked up the sledge. "'Lower! Bend lower!' he snapped, and swung the sledge. It seemed to go black for a moment before Jimmy Dale's eyes, seemed to paralyze all action of mind and body. There was a low cry that was more a moan, the clang of the iron bar clattering on the floor, and Mike Hagan had pitched forward on his face, an inert and huddled heap. A half-laugh, half-snarl purled from Connie Meyer's lips as he snatched a stout piece of cord from his pocket and swiftly knotted the unconscious man's wrist together. Another instant, and picking up the bar, prying with it again, the loosened stone toppled with a crash into the grate. It had come sudden as the crack of doom, that blow, too quick, too unexpected for Jimmy Dale to have lifted a finger to prevent it. And now that the first numbed shock of mingled horror and amazement was past, he fought back the quick, fierce impulse to spring out on Connie Myers. Whether the man was killed or only stunned, he could do no good to Mike Hagan now, and there was Connie Myers. He was staring in a fascinated way at Connie Myers. Behind the stone that the other had just dislodged was a large, hollow space that had been left in the masonry. And from this, now Connie Myers was eagerly collecting handfuls of banknotes that were rolled up into the shape of little cylinders, each one grotesquely tied with a string. The man was feverishly excited, muttering to himself, running from the fireplace to where the table had been pushed aside with the rest of the furniture, dropping the curious little rolls of money on the table, and running back for more. And then, having apparently emptied the receptacle, he wriggled his body over the dismantled fireplace, stuck his head into the opening, and peered upward. 
kinks in his hut kinks in his hut connie myers was muttering i'll drop the bar through from the top maybe there's some got stuck in the pipe he regained his feet picked up the bar and ran with it into what was evidently the front hall then his steps sounded running upstairs like a flash jimmie dale was across the room and at the fireplace like connie myers he too put his head into the opening and then a queer unpleasant smile on his lips he bent quickly over the man on the floor hagan was no more than stunned and was even then beginning to show signs of returning consciousness there was a rattle a clang a thud and the bar too long to come all the way through dropped into the opening and stood upright connie myers footsteps sounded again returning on the run and jimmie dale was back once more on the other side of the kitchen doorway it was all simple enough once one understood the same queer smile was still flickering on jimmie dale's lips there was no way to get the money out except the way connie myers had got it out by digging it out with the irrational cunning of his mad brain that had put the money even beyond his own reach old doyle had built his fireplace with a hollow some eighteen inches square in a great wall of solid stonework and from it had run a two-inch pipe up somewhere to the story above and down this pipe he had dropped his little stirring-tide cylinders of banknotes satisfied that his hoard was safe there seemed something pitifully ironic in the elaborate insane craftiness of the old man's fear-twisted demented mind and now connie myers was back in the room again and again a puzzled expression settled upon jimmie dale's face as he watched the other for perhaps a minute the man stood by the table sifting the little rolls of money through his fingers gloatingly then impulsively he pushed these to one side produced a revolver laid it on the table and from another pocket took out a little case which as he opened it jimmie dale could see contained a hypodermic syringe one more article followed the other two a letter which connie myers took out of an unsealed envelope he dropped this suddenly on the table as mike hagan three feet away on the floor groaned and sat up end of part one chapter eleven b Recording by Roger Moline.